Thank you, Josh, very much. Thank you for having me here. I learned from Marco Rubio. <laughs> Take a drink of water while you're speaking and sell the water bottles later. Josh, thanks for having us here. It's very good of you to sponsor this conference, you and your church. And Mike, I just agree with everything you said. I thought those four categories of people in the church was pastorally very, very helpful. So thank you, and thank you for being here. And Chris and Tara, thank you for leading worship for us. That was, that was great. So, I think I have... A PowerPoint presentation. Ah, I do. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about conversion and understanding as, as, uh, as faith and repentance. I'm just going to pray once more before we start. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise. How good you are. How wonderful your word is. What a rich treasure house it is. Of great wisdom from you. So, such that we will never in our lifetime ever understand the depth and the breadth of all of it. Teach us from it today. And um, I pray that in this area where my brother Fred Shea and I have differences, that you would help us to grow in understanding of each other and of your word on this important topic. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Definition, conversion is, oh, and I'm going to say, Josh, now, 1040, am I, is this 10 minutes after we were going to start? I'm, okay, but what, so now I'm supposed to go till, 10, till 1125? Okay, till when I'm done. Oh. <laughs> okay, I'll try to hurry. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Number one, and um, Dale back here is going to try to keep up and follow me with the uh, slides, and thank you, Dale, very much. Saving faith includes both turning from sin, repentance, and turning to God in faith. This is point number one of eight points in this outline. These are all observations or notes about conversion. Why do I say it involves turning from sin and turning to God in faith? Because that is the emphasis of the New Testament. Hebrews 6.1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Repentance from dead works is not merely a change of mind in the sense of a mental assent that my sins are evil and worthy of judgment. Repentance, it seems to me, includes a sincere commitment to turn from sin. I do not believe this is adding works to faith because they are mentioned together in the New Testament. And repentance from sin, this is because repentance from sin is a component of truly turning to Christ in faith for salvation from sin. And so I believe that a heart commitment to turn from sin is no more works then there's a heart commitment to trust in Christ. Both are decisions of the heart. Neither one is a good work in the sense of an act one does to merit favor from God. And in this verse I read, Hebrews 6.1, the from, apa in Greek, apa plus genitive, apa, the word from is important. It's repentance from dead works. It has the meaning of a repentance that turns you away from your dead works. 
And as you turn away from the dead works, you are simultaneously turning toward God in repentance. Away from dead works, uh, repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, Hebrews 6.1. <clears throat> Similarly, Acts 20.21, 20, which Mike quoted earlier, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God. That's another construction. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance in Acts 20.21 20, is not just a change of some mental ideas in what you think about God or think about your sin. Oh, now I mentally agree that God is fair to judge me. And he says I, he will someday judge the world. Ho-hum, I think I'll ignore this. It's not that. Paul did not say that he testified to Jews and Greeks about a change of opinion regarding some intellectual facts about God and sin. Rather, it is repentance toward God that involves coming out of one's present rebellion and hostility and enmity toward God, a heart of hatred toward God, and coming into the presence of the one infinitely holy, omnipotent, true God and crying out, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 6.5, when you realize you're in the presence of God Himself, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You cannot see God and be in His presence and not repent of your sin and turn from that sin and hate that sin and resolve to give up that sin. Long to be free of that sin. True repentance toward God is a deep, heartfelt sorrow for one's sin. Not just a change of intellectual ideas. It's a decision to turn from sin. This is affirmed also in some of Jesus' encounters with unbelievers. The rich young ruler, he asks him to give up all his possessions. That's a decision. A decision of the will. The woman at the well, he says, go call your husband. John 4.16. Zacchaeus. Once Zacchaeus had, Jesus heard that Zacchaeus had given half of his goods to the poor and had repaid fourfold anything he had stolen. It was fruits that were suitable or befitting or indicated repentance. And Jesus declared that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house in Luke 19, 1-10. I do not think this should be called front-loading or back-loading the gospel. I think it is simply, simply accurately explaining the gospel and accurately explaining what is the nature of saving faith in Scripture. It is adding nothing to saving faith. However, a word of clarification. I am not willing to say, as I have heard that some say, Maybe this is inaccurate. Maybe this is just third-hand report. I'm not willing to say that initial saving faith requires absolute, total commitment of life. For then, nobody would ever be saved. Anybody here say you have absolute, total, 100% commitment of life? In principle, yes, we do have a commitment of life. Jesus demands total commitment of our life. He is Lord of all, but... But we can't perfectly fulfill that demand in this life. So, there's a turning from sin, a resolve to give up sin or turn from it or forsake it, and a sorrow for it. I wouldn't, and a commitment, yes, I don't know that it has to be absolute or total. Um, we can talk about that on the panel. And I do not believe that saving faith includes obedience. And here, my friend Fred Shea, who's in the back row, my faculty colleague friend, uh, Fred Shea, I, I agree with what Fred says in his book on this topic. I do not think that saving faith includes obedience. I think true saving faith results in obedience, but I do not think it includes obedience. 
Nor does any major Reformed confession say that saving faith includes obedience. Nor does any major Reformed or evangelical leader or theologian, to my knowledge, teach that faith includes obedience. Perhaps some careless, unrepresentative writers, perhaps unrepresentative of mainstream Reformed teaching. Um, and I know that uh, Dr. Shea quotes something from Bob Stein that could be understood in that way, but I don't think is rightly understood in that way. But to argue that some that Reformed people say that faith includes obedience, I think, is to argue against a straw man. If I'm wrong, I, w- I would be eager to be corrected. Okay, point number two. Saving faith requires trust in the person of Christ and mere mental assent to facts about Christ without personal trust is not saving faith. Now, um, could you back up one slide, Dale? Um, can you back up one slide? Oh, that's all right. We'll leave it up there. I, I just want to say uh, that I've taught at Phoenix Seminary for, this is a personal word, I've taught at Phoenix Seminary for 12 years. I have great personal appreciation for my friend, my brother, my colleague on Phoenix Seminary faculty, Fred Shea. I have appreciation for his vast knowledge of theology and vast knowledge of scripture. I have great appreciation for his excellent classroom skill as a teacher. I have great appreciation for his genuine concern for students, concern for students that I have often seen manifested behind the scenes when students aren't even around. I have great appreciation for his very sharp mind that always makes it enjoyable for me to to discuss any topic of theology with him. And in addition to that, Fred is just a lot of fun. And we agree on many things, including the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. (laughs) But we differ on this topic of conversation and doctrine. He holds to what is called a free grace view. In my 12 years at Phoenix Seminary, I have not publicly disagreed with Fred's view in a forum like this in the entire 12 years. Except when the subject comes up in Theology 503, which I teach every third year only. And I think maybe once in a Sunday school class at Scottsdale Bible Church. But I haven't, I've decided not to publicly critique this view. Nor have I written articles challenging this view. On the other hand, I believe Fred has from time to time, inside and outside the seminary classroom, publicly argued against the view that I hold. And in fact, fact, I think he's sponsored conferences about it. I think there's one coming up in the near future, in fact. So perhaps I may be forgiven for treading on our friendship and publicly taking issue, I hope respectfully and accurately, with the free grace view. And I hope that if I misrepresent it in any way, Fred or others here will correct me afterward. On the other hand, we were talking at the break, Fred and I, and we were just trying to see if there were points of agreement on something I was going to say. And it may be that if you hold to a free grace view, that you end up saying, well, I agree with what you said there. We don't hold that. And that's fine. Okay, so now this gets back to point two, Dale. Saving faith requires trust in the person of Christ Mere mental assent to facts about Christ without personal trust is not saving faith. It is foreign to the entire New Testament emphasis to view saving faith as a mere intellectual assent. 
Saving faith in the New Testament is regularly represented in terms of an interpersonal interaction between the sinner and Christ, which leads to trusting in Christ as a person. And there are several strands of New Testament teaching. I'm going to mention four. There are probably some others. Several strands of New Testament teaching which require this, trust in a person. So, saving faith, first point A is, sub-point A is pictured as coming to Christ. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It isn't whoever agrees to some facts about me I will not cast out, it's whoever comes to me. John 6.35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. John 7.37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. These verses do not say, If anyone thirsts, let him give mental assent to some facts about me. Coming to someone involves personal interaction with the person. You come to someone because there's a personal interaction. Even stronger is the image of taking from, coming to Jesus and then taking from Him and drinking of the water of eternal life or eating the bread of life. There's personal interaction. Matthew 11.28 Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When I'm sharing the Gospel with someone and someone seems eager to trust in Christ, I will ask, would, it, would you be willing to pray and tell Christ, ask Him to forgive your sins and, and trust Him to forgive you? And I will often read this verse and say to the unbeliever, I want you to think of this not just as historical facts on a page talking about what Jesus said in the past, I want you to think of Jesus being here with us right now. And I want you to think, you can't see Him, but I want you to think of Him saying to you personally, come to Me, Bill, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think it was in the Westminster Seminary Library when I was a student there in 1971, 72, 73, I was reading, I think it was, in Charles Hodge Systematic Theology, something about saving faith, and he gave us this picture of, of thinking of Jesus as right now, this moment, speaking these words to us. That is not a picture of agreeing with intellectual ideas about something that Jesus has done. That's a picture of interacting personally right now with Jesus, who is Lord of the universe and our Savior, and invites us to come to Him. And I, and I find that so helpful so that the person is personally interacting with Jesus. That is what come to me means. It's not just believe facts about me. It's not just give assent to some facts about me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. There's personal interaction, even personal trust, for you're coming to gain rest for your souls. Similarly, Hebrews 7.25 talks about drawing near. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Not He is able to save to the uttermost those who assent to facts about Him. Point B. 
Saving faith is pictured as receiving Christ. Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, John 1.11, He came to His own home and His own people did not receive Him. That's a personal rejection. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. To all who received Him. Not to all who gave mental assent to facts about Him, but those who received Him. To receive someone, to receive a person. Josh received me into the church this morning. Welcome me here. This is he's the pastor. I'm glad he welcomed me and says, hey, keep out, keep out. He, he received me. To receive a person is to welcome that person into fellowship, into relationship. Often in the in the early church would be a picture of welcoming into one's home and certainly into one's life. Colossians two six, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Personal interaction, personal trust, not just believing facts. C. Saving faith is pictured as believing something with your heart. Now, in the heart, in the, in, we often talk of heart in terms of emotions today. In the Bible, heart includes emotions, but it's more than that. The heart is the biblical terminology for the center of your deepest emotions, convictions, beliefs, feelings. It's, it's the center, it's the core of who you are in your being. And when the Bible talks about believing in your heart, this means that saving faith is not just a matter of intellect. It's a matter that involves the whole person, the will, the emotions, the heart. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified with the heart. Acts 16.14, it says of Lydia that the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. Not just to be persuaded that it was truthful words, but to open her heart to have a deep heartfelt trust in Jesus as a person. Ezekiel 36.26 in the Old Testament, a beautiful picture of the change of heart. This isn't just a change of ideas. I will give you a new heart, Ezekiel 36.26, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Therefore, a supposed faith, which is mere mental assent without trust in one's heart, will lead a person only to eternal condemnation. Point D, saving faith is pictured as believing in a person. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The construction here is pistuo plus ace. It's used many times in the New Testament, especially in John to speak of believing in Jesus. And the ace plus accusative has the sense of believing into. And if we understand believing to be a kind of trusting, then we're placing our trust almost into Christ as a person. It again pictures a personal interaction, a personal relationship in which you trust the person. You can believe facts about a person and not trust the person. Picture Someone who is terrified of flying. He can read the facts and find that American Airlines has flown hundreds of thousands of flights 
for 45 years without a, a, without a fatal crash. He can find out that the pilot of this plane has been flying for 27 years without any accident. He can believe all those facts completely and yet he's terrified and clutches his seat when he gets on the plane because he's fearful. He's not trusting. But if he trusts the pilot and trusts the employees of American Airlines, he doesn't have fear. Trusting, believing, believing in the sense of personal trust is different from believing facts about someone. Now in the New Testament, this idea of believing in, and it's so striking a construction, believe into someone. This is common in John, and the sense of believing in someone occurs frequently with pistuo plus ace. I think that pistuo plus ace always have the, has this sense in the New Testament. And I agree with my friend Fred Shea on this on page 40 of his book. He, I think he is saying that pistuo ace always has this sense of... Uh, Saving faith. Um, I think that it is often expressed by, it is sometimes expressed by other constructions. Um, it's expressed with pistuo plus n or the dative alone. Sorry for the technical Greek stuff. I'm getting down in the weeds here, but it's important for the free grace issue. It, I agree with Fred Shea here that there are places where pistuo plus n or pistuo plus the dative also expresses true saving faith. Um, Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's not pistuo ace, it's just pistuo um, plus the dative. Or whoever hears my word, John 5.24, and believes him who sent me, that's just, uh, that is just the dative without end. And so occasionally it is expressed with other constructions. But the point is, Pistuo, uh, this, this different pistuo constructions, but this in particular most often has this idea of believing in someone, trusting in someone. And when the context, whether it's pistuo ace or pistuo n or pistuo plus the data, when the context shows it's placing personal trust in a person, not just the thing the person says, then the New Testament English translations, etc., for instance, will. Translate it, believe in. And I think that's a helpful translation. To believe in someone implies, again, personal trust, not just mental assent. It's frequent. So summary, number two, saving faith requires trust in the person of Christ. Mere mental assent to facts about Christ without personal trust is not saving faith. I think that James, in James 2, is talking about mere mental assent without personal trust. It's exactly what he called a dead faith, a faith that brings no results in life. It will lead only to eternal condemnation unless people progress to personal trust beyond just mental assent. And, and I think that can that faith save him is talking about eternal salvation, not temporal. Number three, if saving faith is genuine, it will continue throughout a person's life. Uh, several verses speak of this. Hebrews 3.14 We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, if you don't continue to believe, 
There's no assurance that you've come to share in Christ. You have come to share in Christ if indeed, aeon pair, if indeed we hold our first confidence firm to the end. Or Colossians 1.22, God has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, or Christ, in order, Christ, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, bring you into heaven in His, into heaven in his, into his presence blameless. If indeed you continue in the faith, Colossians 1.22, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. 1 Peter 1.5, writing to believers, he said, you who by God's, believers are those who will by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God works through their continuing faith to guard them and protect them and give them for sure and certainly eternal life. So what then should we say about people who profess faith in Christ, perhaps become active in the church for the time, for a time, and then fall away and leave the church? Um, and just for the sake of this example, let's say that there's no blatant pattern of sin or hostility toward Christ. I would have to say, and I, Mike and Josh might want to chime in on this later, I would have to say, I don't know for sure. God knows their hearts. They're giving mixed signals. They earlier gave a signal that they were genuinely born again. But now they're giving a signal they've fallen away from the church. They've given a signal that's, that's a negative signal. And I would say they're giving mixed signals. I would not give them assurance of salvation. And if such a person called me on his deathbed and said, Pastor, I know I'm going to die in the next 24 hours. What would I say to that person? I wouldn't say, you trusted in Christ when you were 13. You're saved for sure. My goodness, no. I would say, have you repented of your sins? Turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus who says to you today, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He's inviting you right now. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Receive him, trust in him, believe in him right now for eternal life. That's what I would say to that person because I don't know. And First John talks about some people's departure from the church, saying that it gives indication they never were really tr truly born again. First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Number three, then, if saving faith is genuine, it will continue throughout a person's life. Number four, regeneration always accompanies true saving faith. Now, Regeneration always accompanies true saving faith. Those of you here who hold to a reformed system of theology will say, yes, and it comes before. Otherwise, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, says Ephesians, and you wouldn't be able to believe. I agree with that. I think it precedes silently, secretly, but it precedes saving faith. To give us the, and I've talked about that in my systematic theology book. Others of you here may not hold to that. You may say, that regeneration immediately follows saving faith. You trust in Christ and then you're born again. I'm not getting into that question today. So, because no matter which view you hold, I think you will affirm point number four. Won't you? I think everybody in the room will affirm that. Regeneration always accompanies true saving faith. Either before or after. I would say before. John 1.12 But to all who did receive Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. And what do you say about these people? Who were born 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who received him were those who were born of God. First John 5, 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. I don't think there's disagreement on this. If a person has genuinely trusted in Christ for salvation, that person has been born again. But if that is true, point four, if that's true, then surely one way to gain evidence of genuine faith would be to see evidence of regeneration. The two go hand in hand. And that leads me to point five. Genuine regeneration always brings some results in a person's life. Always, always, always. The New Testament testimony of this is abundant. Second Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But you can't tell? You don't see? Nothing is evident? That can't be. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John, 1 John 3.9 No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I was on the ESV translation committee. I remember vividly the discussion on the committee when we were translating this verse. Present tense of poieo does not. Present tense. Do, continue to do, actively do, repeatedly do. What do we translate? Or just sin. Does not sin. And we recognize that the present indicative doesn't always require the sense of make a practice of or continue to do. But it is a legitimate possible meaning of a present tense verb. In fact, it's probably the most frequent sense of the present tense verb indicative. And more than that, it is the sense that best fits the subject matter and the context, the overall context of 1 John and the rest of the New Testament. The major Bible translation committees and here's the thing, when you get a Bible translation, this is a consensus of a dozen or more fairly mature, some we hope fairly wise uh, scholars. Um, New American Standard, no one who is born of God practices sin. Same idea. NIV, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. New Living, don't, I'm not recommending New Living, but <laughs> those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. New English translation. Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin. And so, 1 John 3.9 If there is no evidence whatsoever of a changed life, then what does the New Testament say? Then the New Testament repeatedly challenges people to ask whether they have truly believed, whether they have truly been born again. And Mike keeps coming back to that again and again in Mike's book. Are, are you really a Christian? Is that the name of it? Am I, am I really a Christian? Oh yeah, okay. Um, repeatedly brings this up. The New Testament often says if there's no evidence, it challenges you to ask, have you truly believed? First John 3.8 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. It can't be simpler in language than that. Nor does the one who does not love his brother. First John 2.4 Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And surely, I think, I know him doesn't refer to just deeper fellowship, but refers to saving knowledge, knowing God personally. Galatians 5.19 The works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I do not think that the whole sense of the verse or the context of the Galatians of the New Testament means that someone who momentarily is angry or has rivalry or dissension is not born of God. But someone about whom these things are characteristic patterns of life, they are not born again and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here's my question for my friends in the free grace movement. Where does the New Testament ever reassure of salvation someone who is stubbornly unwilling to forsake sin? It does not. So what if someone says, Pastor, I believe Christ died for my sin, but I don't want to submit to His Lordship in my life, and I will not submit to Christ's Lordship in my life, but wow, I'm sure glad He died for my sins. I believe the facts. Is such a person saved? Absolutely not. He has not truly come to Christ. He has not truly received Christ. He doesn't realize that he's dealing with the Lord of the universe, with the omnipotent, holy God Himself. And he's saying, thank you for forgiving my sins, but I'm not going to obey you at all. And I don't want anything to do with your Lordship. That's not, hard. That's not coming to Christ. That's not receiving Christ. That's not believing in Christ. That's not trusting in Christ. Number six. The consistent teaching of the Reformation was that we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And I've highlighted the two verbs in that sentence, justified and is, meaning exists, because, because faith being alone is two different things are affirmed about faith in these two halves of the, of the sentence. And why I say this is the consistent teaching of the Reformation is that this formulation or its equivalent is found in all three major streams of the great Protestant uh, tradition coming out of the Reformation after Martin Luther. I begin, number one, with a Reformed teaching from John Calvin. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, well, Calvin's going to come sometime here, maybe. Let's see. So I begin with the Lutheran stream, which was the beginning. The formula of Concord, the great Lutheran summary of doctrine, published in 1576 in Germany. We, all, we believe also, we, that is we Lutherans, we leaders of the Lutherans, we believe also, teach and confess, and Concord was these various groups of Lutherans getting together and we came in Concord to agree and affirm this. All legitimate Lutherans teach that faith alone is the means and instrument whereby we hold on Christ our Savior. We lay hold on Christ the Savior. And so, uh, in Christ lay hold of that righteousness which is able to stand before the judgment of God for that faith for Christ's sake is imputed for us for righteousness. That's justification by faith alone. It's very clear in paragraph 3. But go to paragraph 8. We believe... Let me, I'll, I'll use this pointer. We believe, teach, and confess that although antecedent contrition and subsequent new obedience do not appertain to the article of justification before God, they don't contribute to faith, yet 
we are not to imagine any such justifying faith as can exist, it doesn't exist alone, as can exist and abide with a purpose of evil. To wit, of sinning and acting contrary to conscience. But, after that man is justified by faith, then that true and living faith works by love. And good works always, 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 good works always follow justifying faith and are most certainly found together with it, provided only it be a true and living faith. For true faith is never alone, but hath always charity and hope in its train. Charity meaning love. Back up one slide, Dale, if you will. Justified by faith alone. Go forward one slide, if you will. That faith is never alone. That's Lutheran formula of Concord. Next. Let's see what we, oh, here's John Calvin. Reformed. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Faith alone justifies, but it is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the of the sun. Sorry, it was late last night when I typed this. Of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. I didn't know where to find that in Calvin, but I looked in my friend Fred Shea's book and quoted it from his book, The Faith That Saved, on page 150. Thank you, Fred. Appreciate that. Um, Okay, so that's Reformed tradition. I'm going to get another quote from the Reformed tradition in a minute. But in England, we had the Anglican tradition, the Church of England. The great statement of of doctrinal belief in the Church of England was still Bible-believing and solidly conservative in its doctrine of Scripture. The 39 Articles of the Church of England in 1571 said this, of good works, albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins, not saved by works, and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily. They spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith. If you have true faith, necessarily good works are going to come. Insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. How do you know if you have faith? By good works. That's Church of England, 39 Articles. All right, go over to the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. The great summary of Puritan teaching after the Reformation began to come to England in 1535-1536. And then you've got over a century of mature and wise biblical reflection. It comes to culmination in this amazing statement of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Section 10, paragraph 2. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. means only. Yet it is not alone. It is the instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. It agrees with Calvin's teaching. It agrees with the Lutheran formula of Concord. It agrees with the Church of England 39 Articles. People on all sides of this great strand of Reformation teaching are saying that we are justified by faith alone, but this faith which justifies is never alone. Now, I've heard my free grace friends say, that's a logical contradiction. Faith alone, not faith alone. 
I don't think it is a contradiction. For one thing, all of my free grace friends have to affirm that true faith is never alone because we just argued a few minutes ago that it's always accompanied by regeneration. Oh, it's not alone. We're justified by faith alone, but faith is not alone because it always is accompanied by regeneration. Is that a contradiction? It's justified by faith alone, but it is not alone? No, that's not a contradiction when you say it is accompanied by regeneration. And they would say it's always accompanied by adoption. And they would say it's always going to be accompanied by glorification. So there are many other saving graces that everybody would agree go along with, necessarily follow from saving, with saving faith. And the reason is because God puts them all together. And that's His plan. So I think people on all sides of the controversy have to say that saving faith is never alone. Claiming logical difficulty here is failing to understand the sentence in the way it is intended. Saved by faith alone means faith is the only instrument that God counts as a legitimate means of obtaining justification. But faith is not alone means it is accompanied by other things, even though God does not count those things as any part of a means of obtaining justification. God connects them together, however. I had a student paper once, a while ago, claiming that he had found this contradiction. We're justified by faith alone, but faith is not alone. He claimed he had found this, this is a contradiction. He'd found it in Calvin, Luther, Westminster Confession of Faith, John Owen, J. Gresham Machen, Louis Burkhoff, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, almost the whole history of major theologians in Protestantism. And he was amazed that hardly anybody else had ever seen this contradiction. I would think that would make him suspicious that he is the one who has misunderstood what he is writing about. To claim a logical difficulty is to claim that hundreds of the brightest theologians in the history of the church since the Reformation and tens of thousands of the brightest pastors since the Reformation have failed to notice a simple logical fallacy at the heart of their faith. This is unlikely it is more likely that the critic is not understanding the sentence in the sense in which it was intended. Senior year in college, I took a philosophy class taught by Professor Rogers Albritton, the chairman of the philosophy department. And I remember a memorable time in class where he, a student had found a contradiction, he thought, in Descartes. And Professor Albritton said, if you think you have found a contradiction in a major thinker, you probably haven't. You have just misunderstood this thinker. Let me suggest to you what a contradiction would be. We are justified by faith alone, and we are not justified by faith alone. That's A and not A. But none of these theologians ever say that. Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Baptist. Nobody says we are justified by faith alone, and we are not justified by faith alone. Nobody says that contradiction. Another contradiction would be the faith that justifies is alone and the faith that justifies is not alone. That's A and not A. That's a contradiction. But none of these Reformed theologians ever say this. Nobody says this. Nor do they mean that. The sentence has two verbs. Justified and is, meaning exists. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies never exists alone. Now, I know you could remove the two verbs and you get something that sounds like contradiction. Faith alone and not faith alone. But if I just say faith alone and not faith alone, that's not a contradiction because it has no verbs. 
It's not affirming anything. You don't have a proposition until you have a, fur, a verb. Faith alone and not faith alone isn't affirming anything. Faith is alone and faith is not alone. Well, that's a contradiction, but nobody holds that. Faith alone justifies and faith alone does not justify is a contradiction, but nobody holds that. It's just a nonsense statement that nobody holds. The only function of this kind of argument seems to me is to just confuse the discussion, to misrepresent what the reformers have said and what the vast majority of evangelicals today believe. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies never exists alone. Number seven, and I say this with hesitancy, I've never said this publicly before, because I have great appreciation and affection for my friend Fred Shea and other pastors in the area who hold to the free grace movement. But number seven, the free grace movement today is not upholding the Reformation doctrine of sola fide, or justification by faith alone. The free grace movement is promoting a view of saving faith that the Reformers never held. The Reformers were striving to separate faith from works such as participation in the sacraments, plus being baptized or attending the Mass or doing penance, these actions that are works to merit God's favor. The Reformers were not trying to separate faith from genuine repentance from sin, and they were not saying that genuine faith could occur without a change in someone's life. They repeatedly affirmed that it had to bear good, good works if it's genuine faith. So it seems to me that the free grace movement might at first sound to people like it's promoting a Reformation doctrine. But it is promoting a doctrine that the leaders of the Reformation had nothing to do with. It might claim to be defending a pure gospel, but it is a gospel almost entirely unknown in the history of the church except for a small sect called the Sandemanians in England in 1750 to 1900 died out. It's promoting a novel view that some may initially find persuasive, but we should not think that this free grace view has its root in the Reformation. It is supported by novel interpretations of Scripture unprecedented in the history of the church. In fact, D.A. Carson, in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, page 129, talks about the father of the free grace movement, Zane Hodges, and says Zane Hodges' book, to the best of my knowledge, not one significant interpreter of Scripture in the entire history of the church has held to Hodges' pattern of interpretation of the passages he treats. So I appeal to my friends who are attracted by the free grace movement, please reconsider. Has the entire history of the Christian church been wrong? Or might you be wrong? Number eight. Assurance of salvation depends on multiple factors and can vary in degree. I can't spend time with this now. Mike's going to talk about this, I'm quite sure, later on. Yes, we get assurance of salvation by looking to Scripture and trusting in Scripture and saying we believed it. That's one level of assurance. There's a greater level of assurance that comes in addition to trusting in Scripture, a deeper and stronger level of assurance that comes when we see the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives and we see fruitfulness of ministry. And there's a deeper yet assurance of Christ in our personal relationship with Christ and in the subjective testimony of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart and in a manifestation of love for other believers and obedience to God's command. For sake of time, I'm running out of time and I'm not going to go into the verses that support that. It's in my book, on a systematic theology book, in the chapter on perseverance. 
and we gain deeper assurance by a long-term pattern of growth in one's life. I do not think that Reformed people teach you can't have assurance in this life. The Westminster Confession of Faith is very clear. There's a whole section in the Westminster Confession about how not all believers have assurance, but you can get assurance of salvation. And Reformed teaching is that you can be assured of salvation. I am assured of my salvation and my wife's salvation. And many others, hundreds of other Christians I've known. However, it is spiritually healthy and it should be greatly encouraging for genuine believers to ask themselves, am I really born again? The result of such asking should be great assurance and rejoicing. Praise God, He is guarding me through my faith for salvation kept for me in heaven. 1 Peter 1.5 Praise God, I have been truly born again. I have come to Christ. Nobody will ever snatch me out of Christ's hand. If we remove the emphasis on asking if you are truly in the faith, the result will be more and more supposed Christians whose lives look no different than the world around them. And you can say to them, oh, you're missing out on rewards. And they say, I don't care, I'm having too much fun. And then we wonder why the church looks like the world. Christians who teach, according to the passages I've mentioned, that professing believers should examine themselves to see if their faith is genuine. Christians who teach this, such as Mike here this morning, they are sincerely seeking to be obedient to the New Testament. And I think they are doing this in the rightful way. I've heard such people criticized as being fruit inspectors. But that phrase wrongly attributes a prideful judgmental motive to people who are sincerely seeking to follow Christ and minister effectively to others. I think it's a caricature and it's not a helpful phrase to use in the discussion. Conclusions. These are some observations on conversion. I hope it has been somewhat helpful. I believe this is a crucially important topic for today's church. If we are not preaching a true gospel, many of our hearers, tragically, will not be saved. Examine yourselves, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about, about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Thank you. Now, Josh and I had talked, and I don't know, Josh, I did, it, am I okay to take... A couple of minutes if people... Yeah, we're, we're going to take uh, just some quick questions for about five minutes. Yeah. Now, at the end, we're going to have more time for Q&A. Okay. But if and I, specific questions, I told, you're welcome and, and Fred, to. you may or may not want to say something, but I, I said to Fred he'd have first shot if he wants to respond because I want to be accurate and fair. I don't want to misrepresent. So, And I didn't finish this, honestly, till two in the morning, so <laughs> I didn't have a chance to check. Well... I agree with point eight, uh, that assurance is based on faith and that it can increase because of one's lifestyle and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oh, good. Type of thing. So, yeah, I've always been there. Uh, I think we would hold, and when I say we, maybe the free grace movement, uh, the idea of mere mental assent has such a um, negative connotation. But there are numerous quotes from people like uh, Warfield, and even Calvin that initiate the idea that, and Augustine, that what is faith but pure assent. Calvin emphasizes the passivity of uh, faith in, in the Institutes. 
Uh, Warfield talks about the fact that biblical faith is notitia and a census, not volition. Now, whether they're right or wrong, that's another question. So I, I would simply say that I think the, uh, the aspect of simply putting this mere mental assent can be taken in a very negative way without perhaps seeing the full range of it. I appreciate uh, Dr. Grudem's very gracious attitude towards this. And I really appreciate the fact that we realize that this is a textual issue, right? It's not an issue of theological system. It's an issue of the text of Scripture. And so how we interpret different Bible verses is going to lead us to whatever system we end up uh, creating from it. So I think that's where the debate and the argument always has to be at a textual level, uh, proper hermeneutics, proper exegetical methodology. So I appreciate all that. Obviously, uh, Dr. Grudem and I, besides playing cards, argue over theology as well and don't agree on everything. But there's probably more we do agree on. So that's the good news. But anyway, I appreciate the interaction. I think that's a uh, relatively fair presentation. I think the ascent issue might need to be adjusted a bit. Um, so that would be good. Okay. Fred, thank you. I, I will take relatively fair and go with that. <laughs> Appreciate it. Always enjoy interacting with you, Fred. So, yep. Dr. Graham, thank you very much. Um, and this might be a question for both of you as well. Um, Ephesians. Well, tell me your name first. My name is Tom Gindorf. Tom? Yes. Okay. I'm from Flagstaff here locally. Um, my question is in regard to Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24. Um, looking at those passages recently, um, preaching through them, I noticed that the put on, uh, put off in verse 22, the put off in verse 24 are middle aorist infinitives. Yep. And the verse 23 is a present passive infinitive. It seems to me that that's very often the construction when you're talking about these issues of regeneration and the effect of regeneration. And they seem to be inceptive to me, which would be at the beginning. And uh, I was wondering if you could speak to that with respect to uh, free grace. It seems to me to go against the idea that there is not a putting off and a putting on that, that is intrinsic with regeneration. And then when you look at the, the middle infinitive, which is the present and the passive, that this renewing of the spirit, that that is the ongoing result of, of what happens yeah. actually at salvation. Okay, Tom, if you could very, respond to that. Very astute question. Um, I want to think about that some more in, when I have more time to reflect on it, whether this also provides an additional argument supporting my side. If I were a free grace person, I would say probably that you were taught to put off your old self. Um, after you're saved, after you've made, after you've had saving faith, it's, it's it's free grace. People think we should teach people to obey for sure. So put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Yes, trust the Holy Spirit to work in you. I, I don't think they would see that as a difficulty. But I, am I missing something in your argument? Now, you're saying it maybe well, is inceptive, but I don't know if you can prove that. Well, it's that would be that would be to taking it as well. An but what if it's inceptive after you're saved, after you've justified? It's inceptive. Well, they're taking it as a, an imperative. To, well, sure. Yeah. As soon as you're justified, now begin to put off your old self and be renewed. 
Yeah, I mean, I, no, I don't, I don't believe that. But I'm just saying, if I were a free grace person, I don't think that I, that verse would change my mind. Right, but but why would Paul contrast that with the idea of the present passive infinitive to be renewed? Well, to be renewed. we'd all agree. Let's continually be renewed in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit right. of our mind. Okay. Okay. I think I, I want to make the best argument for the other side I can and understand fairly. So. I, but I can think about that more at leisure. I haven't thought about the verse, so thanks for bringing it up. Yes. N- who's next? Anybody else? We've got maybe one or two more, and then we're going to do a panel. Way in back. Uh, I'm pretty simple on my question here. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, although I do, I do believe and I do teach uh, that one must examine themselves. Are you saved? And, uh, and that... How, at what, how, how much results must there be for someone to be able to say, I'm saved? Some. Just some. How do we identify <laughs> that for someone who's struggling? I, cause, well, cause you had, that's that's you, just where I struggle well, on. This is like, well, um, it's like the more okay, there, now you're saved. I, I, you know? I think the first chapter of 2 Peter indicates that the more results there are, the more assurance you have. So there are people that are born again and all of a sudden they're free from their drug habit or their cursing or whatever and there's a transformation in life. You say, wow, there's clear evidence. Other people are born again, you see some evidence. And, but, you, but there's still some patterns of sin. I think about such people, if someone comes to me, am I really saved or not? I would say, I'm not sure. And I, I want to allow for a category of I don't know. Okay? And, and I think that's what those examine yourselves passages are about. Well, let's talk about your life. Let's pray together. Okay? 